Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning on Epiphany Sunday. And I wonder, as you kind of come into the new year, um, what began your journey to Jesus? What's the process that started you walking uh, in faith? Was there a moment, a person, maybe a tragedy that turned your world upside down and you clung to the Lord, or something beautiful that took your breath away and pointed you uh, towards Jesus? If I think about my journey, for me, it began with being raised in church. Um, I was baptized uh, the first time at five, um, captured by the Lord's grace in high school, and in college started looking at um, vocational ministry. Uh, My journey with the Lord has taken me through um, several denominations. I'm probably not alone with that here. I think we have lots of folks who have uh, journeyed throughout God's kingdom. Uh, Parachurch ministries in and out of churches of um, all kinds of different sizes. Um, A long journey of continuously seeking Christ and his kingdom while being very aware um, that he has earnestly sought me and found me and reached out with grace and mercy. Uh, Maybe your journey has been long. Maybe your journey um, has been short. Maybe you're still seeking, curious about Jesus, um, and don't even know what all this church business is about. And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here this morning. It's a good place to be and to bring those questions. Uh, My guess would be, and I've I've had coffee with many of you and gotten to hear your story and hear, hear your journey of faith, is your journey probably falls into one of two categories. Um, Either at some point, Christ astonished you, like surprised you one day and everything changed in an instant, or it was a long journey uh, that took several years and decades, a long winding road. Uh, Both of those are fine. Uh, Sometimes Jesus ambushes people. I think of the shepherds in the field from the Gospel of Luke. Um, They were just in the fields, doing their work, minding their own business. And angels filled the sky and announced, we have good news of great joy that is for you and all the people. And they said, hey, let's let's go see. Let's investigate this a little bit. God invaded their lives, and they said, let's go and see this thing that has happened. And so the Gospel of Luke, we see the shepherds as these really unlikely folks that God ambushes. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew is a little different. Instead of lowly shepherds, we get these high royal wise men, um, these magi, and they're not ambushed in the same way, but they are drawn on a very unlikely, unorthodox path to come and follow Jesus, uh, the one born um, King of the Jews. Um, And that's what I want to look at a little bit today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at the epiphany, but it's an ironic Um, astonishing epiphany that we see. Because over and over again, those who are least likely to connect to Jesus um, find him. He shows himself to them. And those who seem like the most likely to encounter Jesus miss him altogether um, in this story. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the least likely and the most likely and then see what we can take from this as we move um, into the new year. So the least likely... Um, The first two verses say, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. They came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. It's an interesting setup from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, You get these wise men from the east. They come to the royal city, Jerusalem, looking for the one who's now been born king. They're excited. They want to come and bring tribute. They want to honor and worship uh, the newborn king. And, And the path, the way they got there, was something they saw in the sky. Something that they drew, they had their attention fixed upwards, and something appeared, and it drew them all the way to Jerusalem. Um, and if you think about that, um, you know, we are inundated with electricity and light. It's hard to actually find darkness, isn't it? Um, but if you find, if you go out and find dark, I can think, uh, not this summer, but the past summer, um, I was on a backpacking trip in Colorado for over a week, um, and it was dark. <laughs> Like we actually got out of the city, out away from everything, um, and the blackness of night came, it was dark, and then boom, the stars appear. And they're unmistakable. And you see them. That's what happened with these magi. They see the stars in the sky. They're, they're paying attention to the stars in the sky. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says that this star um, could have been like a supernova or a comet, Uh, More likely, if you look at some of the charts, um, we see that there were two planets, Jupiter and Saturn, that were in conjunction with one another multiple times in the year 7 BC. Um, We can actually go back and chart that and see it. Um, And you can imagine how this might work. Um, If you're looking in the the sky for signs, uh, well, Jupiter was seen as an omen of royalty. Why would Jupiter be the star, of the planet of royalty? It's the biggest. Yeah, this isn't that hard. <laughs> um, and Saturn was often thought to refer to the Jews. I don't know why. Maybe the, the rings around Saturn. But when they saw um, this planet of royalty and this planet, they said, hey, this has something to do with Israel. It came together multiple times. And they said, aha, I bet there's a new king to be born. Let's go to Jerusalem and find out. Um, we don't know exactly what, that, that's a, what we think might have occurred. Um, clearly, they were responding to something significant that they saw. Um, and so who were these men? Uh, you probably know the song, We Three Kings. We're going to sing it at the end of our service um, today. And they may have indeed been royal, but it's more likely that they were not uh, themselves sovereign rulers, but were part of a royal court. Uh, They would have been wealthy, they would have been very powerful, they would have been proximate um, to a king and to power. Um, Clearly, they had enough money and enough time to make this long journey to Jerusalem from the east. Um, There there wasn't a lot of uh, gap years and backpacking around Europe back then. (laughs) You had to be very wealthy to undertake these kinds of tasks, and so they had come from the east. Um, maybe from Persia or Iraq. Um, when we hear that they come from the east, that is spiritually significant. Because in the scriptures, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are sent out of Eden, they're sent east. 
Um, East is always away from God. Um, If you're Israel, East is away from God's people. That's where they come from. They come from the the realms of exile and the realms of the nations. Um, And they certainly cause a scene when they arrive in Jerusalem. Um, They're there with their entourage, and they're looking for the one that was born king of the Jews, the rightful ruler of God's people. And, And being born king of the Jews is in dangerous contrast to Herod. Because Herod had been named king of the Jews by the Romans. Um, And there's a universal rule. It was true then. It's true now. You only get one king at a time. So if you're saying there's one who is rightfully born king of the Jews, and there's one who's been named by the interloping Romans king of the Jews, we have a conflict set up. They're on a collision course to say, who is the rightful king? Who is the true king of Israel? Um, And these magi, I tend to think of them like Jafar from Aladdin. If you've seen Aladdin, I know it's Family Worship Sunday. We've got some kids. Y'all probably seen Aladdin. Um, They're kind of like Jafar. They're they're there in the court. Uh, They're powerful in their own right. Um, They dabble in some sketchy stuff. Um, That would have been these magi. Um, When it says that they are magi, and we we actually get the word magician from that. Um, These are not parlor tricks or card games that they're engaged in. Um, These are absolute, rich, pagan, Gentile magicians. How odd (laughs) that they would come to bear tribute to Jesus, born in a lowly stable place in the manger. Um, when I think of the wise men, the magi, um, the, the phrase uh, spiritual but not religious comes to mind. You might have heard that in the news, spiritual but not religious. These are the original spiritual but not religious. They're interested in anything spiritual. They're looking for any sign. They are dabbling in anything, but they're trying to figure out what is real. Um, and what I actually like about these magi Um, is that while they were not part of God's people or part of the covenants, they didn't have the scriptures, they didn't have all of the normal routes to the Lord, um, somehow God still revealed himself to them. And they responded. They actually went out on a limb to follow a star to make this journey. Um, They were spiritually hungry and God got through to them. The least likely to follow the Lord, or be responsive to him. It's like if someone told you, hey, tell me how you came to follow Jesus. You're like, well, one day I was reading my horoscope in the newspaper, and boom, the penny dropped. This is not how you do it. Um, But that can happen, right? We can have wild and weird ways that we come to know the Lord. Um, I'm actually, right now, I'm helping a church. uh, They're in our diocese. They're in Tennessee. And they are searching for a new lead pastor. So I'm helping as kind of a coach um, in the process for them. And one of the things that every candidate has to do is to give you their faith story. Tell us about your journey. How did you come to know the Lord? And you read through and you're like, these are all so different and so unexpected. And some of these, you can tell, they're like embarrassed that that's actually their story. Like it's so bad and bizarre. They're like, yeah, that's not how to do it, but it's how God did it. 
And that's what we see here. This is not how we would do it, but it's how God did it. And he drew these wise men to himself. And so they're the least likely. Let's talk about the most likely. Because these, ra- these magi go to Jerusalem. That makes sense, right? If you're going to go visit the one born king of the Jews, you go to the royal city. That's where it seems like he would be. And you go, hey, I bet King Herod and his court are thrilled. Let's go to the royal court to see the royal son. That all makes a lot of sense. They walk into Jerusalem thinking everyone there will be so excited, but they're not. (laughs) Herod is deeply troubled. What do you mean there's one that's been born king of the Jews? Now, um, to know about Herod, you have to know that Herod was a madman. He was absolutely crazy. Um, It was said in the ancient world, it was better to be one of his pigs than children because you were more likely to stay alive longer. Um, He actually slew many of his own kids who he thought were aiming for his throne. It makes actually what he does a little bit later in Matthew, you go, well, this guy is just absolutely um, bonkers. Any hint of ambition or treachery, boom, met with instant bloodshed and violence. Um, The other thing to know about uh, Herod is he was a builder. He was crazy, but he was a builder. Um, If you visit Israel, almost everything you visit that's still standing was built by Herod and his architects and his artisans. Um, When I visited in the past, um, our guide was trying to help uh, us Americans understand Herod, um, the crazy man and the builder. And he said, actually, you guys know of Saddam Hussein, um, who ruled Iraq for so long. He was crazy. Um, And if you got close to him, you were in more danger and more proximity. But he built a ton of stuff. Um, He was industrious in what he did. He said, that is a modern day um, King Herod. With all of the insecurity and all the industriousness that that uh, analogy would imply, And so these magi walk into his court asking about the new rightful king of the Jews, Um, immediately casting aspersions on his legitimacy. And if someone is really insecure, that's a really dangerous path um, to walk. And so Herod, he's troubled, he's agitated, um, but he's, he's smart. So he calls for the scribes, he calls for the religious leaders. He says, hey, hey, Bible people, tell me where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And the Bible people show up, and they go, oh, well, we know. It's in the prophet Micah. The Messiah is going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Um, And that, to me, um, is ironic, because that is this little nowhere town. It is, again, the least likely place you would have the king being born. You would expect him in Jerusalem. But here's the thing that whenever I read this passage um, that I find chilling. So the wise men, they somehow look at the sky and are drawn to the Lord on this journey. Herod's court... They have the very words of God. They can actually ace the Bible test, and they miss the Messiah. That is always so chilling to me that the ones in this story 
with the most religious knowledge and truth. They have the right book, but were dead wrong. They missed him. They absolutely missed Jesus. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a warning to us that we can have, or we can think we have it all figured out because the Lord in his grace has given us the scriptures. He sent us his spirit. He's given us this community. But sometimes if we are not attentive to what God is actually doing in our midst, we can miss him. And we can miss his work. It's a call to be awake and alert to what God might be doing in and around um, and even hopefully through us. Um, there's another story from the Gospels that really hammers this point home. Um, it's the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. You might know this parable. Uh, it's from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there's a man who is beaten and he's robbed on a journey. And the next thing you know, a priest comes by. The kind of person with all the right answers and the right book. And you go, surely he'll help this man. Surely he'll stoop down and do the right thing. But no, he crosses to the other side of the street and he keeps going. Then a Levite, one of these scribes, comes by. Maybe he'll stop. Nope. You remember who stops? It's the Samaritan. And the Samaritans were viewed as these kind of like religious half-breeds in the first century. They had it all mixed up and muddied. They had bad theology, but they had love in their hearts, apparently. Um, and that man stops, and he cares for um, the Samaritan. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. The message there is not to try to have bad theology <laughs> or to not study the Scriptures and to only look for weird things in the sky. The message is if we have those things, and how much more shall we be aware of and alert and attentive to the work of God all around us? Those, these lessons, whether it's the Good Samaritan or the Magi, are meant to push us back into an awareness that God is at work. And we should notice and we should see. That's the proper response. If you go back to um, our passage, it says that Herod, um, once he figures out they're in Bethlehem, he summons the wise men. He ascertains when the star had appeared. And then he sends them uh, to Bethlehem. And he says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Um, it's actually really interesting. Because if, if this afternoon someone says, hey, you went to church this morning. Yeah. Um, what was the sermon about? Well, the pastor said we should listen to King Herod. Do you realize that King Herod has the best one-liner in the whole passage? Like the best application? The best takeaway is actually what King Herod says. Now, he says it with ill intent. But listen to it at face value. Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Um, can you think of a better charge for the new year? Go and search diligently for Jesus. And it's not a game of hide and seek. He is ready and waiting to be found. And then we can bring others and we worship him. And we worship him fully. They go and they give these great gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, uh, representing Jesus' royalty 
his priestly nature, and eventually even his death. Those gifts are significant that they bring. They resonate with what we heard in the prophet Isaiah of how the nations would come and bring tribute to the one born, not just king of the Jews, but king of all the world, all the nations. And then, of course, in our story, God will intervene. Um, He lets the wise men know in a dream, hey, don't go back to Herod. In case you didn't pick up on it, he's crazy. (laughs) Um, He means this child harm. Um, Go home another way. And so he sends them another way. Um, They actually, the Lord will appear to Joseph in a dream, say, get out of town. He goes down to Egypt, and then you have the slaughter of the holy innocents from Herod. Um, It's a a chilling story. Uh, But here, these magi were were just shown right at the get-go in Matthew Um, And Matthew's gospel is usually known for being pretty Jewish in its character and its focus. But Matthew wants us to know this is not just for the Jews. This is for all the nations. God's salvation, um, God's king. His plan was always for the Gentiles to stream in and bow down before uh, the Lord. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, reflecting on this, says the arrival of the Magi introduces us to something which Matthew wants us to be clear about from the start. If Jesus is in some sense king of the Jews, that doesn't mean his rule is limited to the Jewish people. At the heart of many prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah, were predictions that his rule would bring God's justice and peace uh, to the whole world. We're constantly reminded the Father's heart is for all to come to him, that no one is too far gone to be welcomed home. If rich pagan magicians could find Jesus by looking at the stars, no one is unreachable, including you and me. I'm including that family member that you've prayed about for so, so long. Um, Or that coworker that infuriates you. Or that neighbor that annoys you. No one is too far gone. And so a few takeaways as we close, besides just listening to Herod. Uh, First, um, I am always inspired by this passage to pray uh, for those around us who need to be led to the Lord, like the Magi. And and actually, like the the Bethlehem star, um, we have the opportunity to serve as a light post and a beacon to point people towards the Savior. And we shouldn't be surprised when it's the least likely, the shepherds, the magi, those such that are drawn to the Lord instead of the good people and the ones we expect. Epiphany is all about the gospel, the announcement going out to the whole world that Christ is Lord, that he is king. And epiphany is all about grace, the grace he holds out to all of us, even the least likely and even the most likely. St. Paul in 2 Timothy one of the most unlikely converts ever, writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
Um, you might have seen there's a little blurb about Epiphany in the bulletin, and it mentions that this is a season of adoration and mission. And so one clear takeaway is an encouragement for mission, to be willing to be sent out, to be sent by God as lights into our world. And not mission in the sense of only getting a passport and going somewhere. God sometimes calls us to that, which is great. But sometimes the harder work of actually being a missionary to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and those who we see day after day after day after day and who know us and who know our lives. The second theme, adoration. To worship and adore King Jesus now, one author says that if you look at this whole section, what it really says is think about what it means for Jesus to be the true king and then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. Come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. And so one last illustration um, how many J.R.R. Tolkien fans are here? Anyone like Tolkien? Anyone watch the movies over the holidays when you have long stretches of days? Um, there, there's this wonderful illustration in uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where you have uh, this man named Aragorn who is the true and rightful king of Gondor. Um, and then you have someone else. Um, and he, this other man is a steward. Um, do you know the difference in that, being the rightful king versus being a steward? The steward is there to um, substitute temporarily, to manage, to make sure that what someone else owns is distributed and dispersed properly. But in the Lord of the Rings, they have this insightful, wonderful idea that sometimes those who are called to be stewards get really comfortable on the throne. They decide they'd rather be king. They'd rather remain king as much as they can. Um, there's a character in the, in the story. His name is Boromir. His father is the steward of Gondor. There's a moment where he realizes who Aragorn is. He has this epiphany. You're the rightful king. And you know how he responds? <laughs> it's not with adoration. It's not with mission. He looks at him, realizing who he is, and he says, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. The Magi came to Herod, and Herod proclaims in the very same way, um, Israel has no king. Israel needs no king, no Messiah. I'm here. I can rule. It's comfortable on the throne. I'm in charge. Um, and again, maybe that's not so different than you and me. Because we're called to be stewards. We're called to be stewards of our lives. And sometimes when we are confronted and realize who Jesus is, as we're saying, God in flesh made manifest, the rightful king of the whole world, including our own lives, well, we lay our lives down before him as our gift, our tribute, like the wise man, or stubbornly cling to control, like Herod, like the steward of Gondor? Do we want to try to run our own lives to be in charge? This epiphany season, 
this new year, may we look to King Jesus, the light of the world, the Lord of the world, and seek first and foremost his kingdom, the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.